And so please turn to John's Gospel. John chapter 12, I'm going to begin reading at verse 20. The aftermath of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on what we call the triumphal entry. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, there were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so, Lord, this is your word. Apply it to our own lives and hearts. Break through our ears, through the mind, into the heart and soul that we may see Jesus in his name. Amen. I said last time that we reached a turning point in John's gospel. From here on out, everything points to the cross. Uh, this passage is, is like a hinge on a door as, as Jesus turns and begins to march resolutely toward Calvary where He will lay down His life, not only for our sins, but for a whole world of sinners who trust and follow Him. And the trigger for this turning point comes when these Greeks arrive and ask to see Jesus. And he says in reply, The hour has come for me, for the Son of Man, for the Christ, to die. Look at it again, verse 20. Now there were among those who went up to worship at the feast. And of course the feast we're talking about is the Passover. Remember all those milling crowds, all those hundreds and thousands and thousands of people gathered in Jerusalem. And among them are these Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now there's several things going on here to set the stage. First of all, I want you to notice that there is a supreme irony here that I mentioned last time. You remember how the Pharisees had complained back in verse 19, and they said, Look, the whole world's gone after him. The world is going after Jesus. And now John seems to respond to them and says, Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Behold, the world just arrived in the form of these Greeks. And they're asking to see Him. You see, the Pharisees are far more right than they could have possibly realized. Here on the very doorstep of the temple stand these Greeks asking about Jesus, the first in a great flood of humanity that will come seeking Him from every nation, tribe, and tongue, hoping to press into the kingdom of God and to find a welcome through Israel's Messiah King. I mean, this is just a little foretaste, a little picture of what's to come. And so who are these Greeks? Why are they even here? How have they heard about Jesus? 
Well, more than likely, these, uh, these Greeks are what the Jews would have called God-fearers. Um, there was a really interesting thing happening right about this time in history. Of course, God is behind it, but it was very interesting that many of the pagans from the Greek and Roman world had begun to discover the God of Judaism from the dispersed Jews around them, and they were drawn to what they were hearing. You see, they were tired of these petty little gods that they found in the Greek and Roman pantheons, these little gods who were as immoral and vindictive as men were, this, this, this celestial soap opera of, of backstabbing and adultery and petty rivalry. They, they, were, they were sick of that and they longed for more. And they heard about this one supreme God full of righteousness and beauty and truth, a God who could be known, a God who saves. And and so these non-Jews began to be drawn to the biblical teaching found in Judaism. And and they were looking looking for a way in, a way way to come to, to know this God. And so many of them would even come and they would sit in the back of the synagogues and they would listen to the teaching. They they weren't ready to become Jewish. They weren't ready to change their culture. They weren't they weren't ready to be circumcised and keep the law and all that, but they were longing for a way of access to God. And From that longing, history tells us, some of them would even journey on a sort of a pilgrimage to Jerusalem during the feasts to to observe what was going on and to to learn from more. They They would go up to the temple hoping perhaps for access only to discover that the way was barred. You remember there was that big sign uh, warning that they could come to the, to the courtyard of the Gentiles on the outer skirts of the temple, but, but they couldn't go any further because this sign warned them, Gentiles don't go beyond this barrier on pain of death. And so these had come looking for Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus, they say. But, but how did they even know about Him? How did they know to look for Him? Well, of course, here they are in Jerusalem. And Jesus is the talk of the town. If you were in Jerusalem that week, you're hearing about Jesus. So maybe that's why they know who He is. But but also, if we we think about Mark's Gospel, Mark tells us that right after the triumphal entry we looked at last week, that Jesus went to the temple and He cleaned house again. There were, in fact, two temple cleansings. Mark tells us that as after Jesus entered the city, he went to the temple and began to drive out those. This is Mark eleven fifteen to seventeen. He began to drive out those who sold and who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, "Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den." Of robbers. Now, do you remember where that event took place? That marketplace that Jesus pillages was in the court of the Gentiles. That place God had set aside for for, for Greeks and other non Jews to draw near was filled with this silly marketplace. Jesus has just cleaned house. And what are the chances, do you suppose, that these Greeks come to Jerusalem to seek God were in that marketplace, i.e., that court of the Gentiles, and they saw what Jesus did and they heard him say, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? And that would have given them hope. Hope that maybe there is a way in for 
us too. And so they're drawn to Jesus. They want to meet this man. And so it says they approach, of all people, Philip. Sir, we want to see Jesus. Now, why Philip? We're told in verse 21 that Philip is from Bethsaida. You may have wondered why John thought we should know that. Because Bethsaida was a border town. Uh, it, technically, it was not even in Galilee, but the Jews considered it part of Galilee, so they, 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 that's how they would see it. It was a mostly Jewish city, but one that was surrounded by a large Greek region called the Decapolis, the ten Greek cities. Jews from that city tended to be more Greek in their outlook. They could speak Greek. I mean, they had to to do business in the community. They, they tended to be more, uh, more willing to interact with non-Jewish people than other Jews might have been. And, and so something about Philip tips them off. Maybe it was his Greek name. Philip is not a Hebrew name. It's a Greek name. Maybe they heard someone say, Hey, Philip! And thought, Oh, we could probably talk to him. Perhaps they heard him say something in Greek and realized this man will understand us if we begin to talk with him. Or maybe they themselves were from that Decapolis region. Just because it says they were Greek doesn't mean they came from the nation of Greece. They may have come from the Decapolis. They may be uh, Greeks from there and they recognized him. For whatever reason, they go to Philip and then Philip in turn takes Andrew. By the way, his name is Greek also and he's also from Bethsaida. And so they, they, they find someone to talk to. These two men then go in turn and they take them to Jesus. Interesting, by the way, many of you know this, a little sideline. Every time we see Andrew in John's Gospel, you know what he's doing? He's leading someone to Jesus. He brought Peter, his own brother. He brought the little boy with the sack lunch. And now he brings these Greece, these Greeks. Man, I want to be more like that guy. But it's the coming of these Greeks that triggers Jesus to say, the hour has come. Now why is that? Because everything is now in place, prophetically. The Jewish authorities are ready to kill Him. They're looking for a way. The world itself has come seeking Him. And Jesus, knowing the time, answers in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour. The hour. What hour is He talking about? Well, certainly He means the appointed hour of His death. Remember, in John's Gospel, uh, always before, when that hour was mentioned, we were told that it hadn't come yet. Happens in John 2, John 7, John 8. Uh, that's why his enemies couldn't touch him. Uh, John 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now it has come. And Jesus is ready to lay down his life. The hour has come, he says, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Son of Man, Son of Man. Who's that? Well, you know this answer, right? It's Jesus Himself. Uh, Jesus, God become man, Son of God, God the Son, sent from heaven to save sinners. That's all out of Daniel chapter 7. And we're told now it is the time for Him to be glorified. Glorified! Now that sounds great, doesn't it? Glorified! Surely that means thrones and, and crowns and celebration. No, no, no. It means His death. His death for our sins. 
Very likely, this statement of Jesus is actually a reference back to Isaiah again. Isaiah 52 verse 13 where God says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. He's going to come. He's going to be glorified. Okay, that's wonderful again. That sounds beautiful. What do we mean? Well, of course, that very passage of Isaiah we read this morning, as soon as 52.13 announces His glorification, it then defines that glorification of those words we've already heard. Isaiah 53, verse 3, He'll be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He'll be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him will be the chastisement that brings us peace, and by His wounds we'll be healed. In the economy of God, glory comes not through self-advancement and power, but through suffering and death in obedience to God. The only way these Greeks, or you and me for that matter, have any hope of entering the kingdom of God and seeing Jesus is for Christ to lay down His life for us. Our participation in the glory of God comes at the expense of His life. And that brings us to the next thing as Jesus continues. And that is to understand that without His death, there can be no life for us. Without His death, there can be no life for us. He makes that very clear in the very next verse, verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you... Now, eh, eh, right, kids? Right? What does it mean? What are those truly, truly? It's kind of an alarm bell. Do you remember? What's it mean? Wake up. Pay attention. Get your ears on. What's coming next is very, very important. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about himself. He's, he's talking about what he came to do. He's talking about how he is going to be glorified. And he uses this, this illustration from botany, from, from agriculture, something every farmer and every gardener knows. You, you take a seed like this, and, and you, you put it into a jar, and set it up on a shelf. And what does it accomplish? Nothing whatsoever. Sitting there in isolation on the shelf, it remains alone, a single, solitary, little seed filled with potential, no doubt, but bearing no fruit. And if you leave it in that jar long enough, it'll never bear fruit. But you take that same seed and you cast it into the ground. You, you give it a good burial. You, you let it die, so to speak. And it'll bring a great harvest of life. Jesus says, that's what must happen to me. I mean, think about it. If He had chosen to keep His life for Himself, if He'd chosen to guard it and protect it as people do, rather than giving it away as He has done, He'd, he'd still be the Son of God. He'd, he'd still be glorious. He'd still be full of life and grace. He'd still be Jesus. But He'd remain, speaking of Himself as a human being, He'd remain alone. No one else would be able to share in His life. No one else would be able to benefit from what He came to do. No, no, no. For Him to share the fruit of His life with us, He must first cast it into the ground and die. You see, that's His Father's will. 
That's why He came. That's the joy that was set before Him, as Hebrews says. He didn't didn't come to enjoy this heavenly life for Himself. He came to lay it down, to to give it away, to, to go into the ground of death and suffering for us. And then you know the rest of the story. Take it up on the third day in order to bring about this rich and fruitful harvest of life which is for all those who will believe. And by the way, notice this. Notice that he doesn't say, if he lays down his life, he might bring such a harvest. Hopefully. Do you see there's no maybe here? Jesus doesn't lay down His life merely hoping that maybe somebody would hear about it and possibly someone might come to believe. He does this knowing that His death will infallibly bring about the goal for which He came to accomplish the salvation of many sons and daughters to glory. I love the way R.C. Sproul makes this point in his little commentary. He says, Jesus did not say that if the grain of wheat falls into the ground, it might produce some fruit. Instead, he said that it would produce much fruit. It is not possible, not even theoretically possible, that the atonement of Jesus could not bear fruit. The Father makes certain that the grain of wheat that dies bears fruit. So if you are in Christ and have tasted of the bread of heaven, you are that fruit. Indeed, that fruit accompanies the whole of Jesus' church, which will include these Greeks. No longer would they be kept on the fringes of the people of God. No longer would they be restricted to the outer court. The dividing wall between the Jew and Gentile was demolished by the atonement of Jesus. And there's our connection back to these Greeks. We don't know if they actually got to meet Jesus that day or not. We're simply never told. But it's their presence that prompts Jesus to make this declaration that gives them hope, and oh, by the way, us hope. If Christ, again, had kept His life to Himself, these Greeks and everyone like them, that you and me, could not be saved. If Christ keeps His life to Himself, we would remain forever cut off from that life and doomed for all eternity. But when He chose to cast Himself into the ground to suffer and die in our place, taking our shame and rise on the third day, glory! (laughs) He opened up a door for us that cannot be shut. And you see, that's the harvest He's talking about. And listen, that is the hope of the world, church. It's what we're celebrating The willing death and rising of Jesus is what opens the door to eternal life for these Greeks and for us Americans and Europeans and Asians and Africans and Islanders and South Americans, you name it. But He must die for us to live. He must yield His life. He must throw it into the ground of a brutal death on the cross for us to gain the rich harvest He came to give. Okay, I'm just reminding you this because this is why we gather to worship Him. It's why we're here. It's why we send and support missionaries. It's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I mean, think about that. Think about these, these, some people call them ordinances, others call them sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. I mean, again, what are they saying every time that we see them? What are we supposed to remember as we participate? Kyle just reminded us of this. The Lord's Supper. What is that picture? You you can answer. 
His death in our place. Right? His death that we might live. Every Sunday we hear those words, for, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The Lord's Supper presents His death for our life. Then baptism, what does it picture? Our death with Him and resurrection. That we may have life. Right? Romans 6 Verse 4, you were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So think about that. So the Lord's Supper, in the Lord's Supper we see that He died to secure this life, and then in baptism we see that we die with Him to enjoy this life. And that brings us into this third thing. Not only without His death could we have no life, but number two, Three, without your death in Him, you can have no life. Notice how He brings this home to us. Right after speaking of Himself in verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He then turns to talk about you, Christian. Whoever, or all of us, all human beings, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. So the principle there is life coming through death. But it doesn't just apply to Jesus on the cross and resurrection. Here it applies for us as well. Do you see that? As we follow Christ in this life and for this life, He leads us along a path that leads to our death as well. Death to self. Death to self-centered living. Death to this radical personal autonomy that people are drunk with today. Death to the all self-will. Not I, but Christ. And listen again to what Jesus says in verse 25. Here is the basic life principle for every Christian. Whoever loves this life, and the word he uses there is the little word suke, where we get our word psychology, and it speaks here primarily of this earthbound life, the life of me, my soul, here, isolated around myself. Whoever loves his life, his own little bitty tiny life, loses it. Whoever hates his life, same little narrow little life in this world, whoever hates that life will keep it for eternal life. New word, zoe, broad, open life forever. He says to love your little isolated life here and now means what? Whoever loves this life, will lose it. What, what life is he talking about here? He's talking about, he's talking about when you cling to this little isolated life, when you, when you strive to keep it for yourself, when you hold on to it with this tight fist and you treat this little life of yours as your own to do with as you will. To love your life here and now means putting yourself first, uh, living for your comfort, living for your plans, for your future. It's, it's what the culture says every day you should be doing. My truth... My body, my choice. Who are you to tell me how I should live? Who are you to tell me what's right or wrong for me? I get to decide that. That's how many live today. Radical, personal autonomy. And Jesus says, if you live like that, you will destroy yourself. That's that word, that translated, that little word, to lose. Look at it, to lose. Literally it means to be destroyed. Apollo me. To, to be ruined. 
The surest way to ruin your life eternally is to live for yourself. To put yourself and your needs first. Choose that course, Jesus says, and you doom yourself eternally. Understand, dear one, how you live now counts forever. And yet paradoxically, he says, but lay down that life for Christ. Lay down that life for others. Don't love it and cling to it, but he uses the word hate and you will gain life for all eternity. What does he mean by hate? What does he mean hate your life in this world? That sounds terrible to most people. You must really hate yourself. To hate your life in this world means to follow Jesus in a heaven-oriented life that is not focused on me and getting my way here and now. It's not in that isolated little suke kind of life, just me and mine doing for me and getting my stuff and getting my life. It's, it's throwing that in the garbage, putting it in the ground so that I can gain through Christ the life that never ends. To hate my life means to cast it aside. To see this this present earthbound life as nothing compared to what's coming so that I'm, I'm free to give it away. I'm free to cast it into the ground. It's the opposite of clinging to life. It's letting it go. So I wake up every morning and I say, Lord Jesus, here's my life. It's yours. Do with it what you will. Send me and I will go. Ask me and I will obey. Lord, all that I am and all that I have, it's yours. And understand, when you live like that, the world's not going to understand. I mean, to give all to Christ? Are you kidding me? To, To choose to have less of this world that you can have more of Christ? To treasure things above more than things on earth? They'll look at you and say, that's crazy. You must really hate yourself. Remember, when I was in college and right after Amy and I got married and, and had, had my degree in chemistry and you know, planning on going and you know, doing further that and, and just became clear, Lord's calling me away from that. Best decision I ever made. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with it. But I had three different people, two professors and a friend, pull me aside and tell me I'm an absolute idiot and fool for doing this. Why? Literally, one of them said, why would you throw your life away? They say, that's crazy. Why aren't you protecting yourself like we do? Why aren't you guarding your reputation by agreeing with us and getting on the right side of history? Why are you willing to spend yourself for the sake of others and to give your life and your money and your things away? Why do you let people mock you? You're weird. And your answer? Because having Jesus and life with Him forever is worth it. Because following Him here and now with the suffering and loss it may bring is better than suffering for all eternity. Because because what I have in Him now and for eternity is better than what I would have if I gained the whole world. Make me as rich as Bill Gates or the Facebook guy, Mark Zuckerberg. And that's a loss, not a gain. Do, Do you believe that? Do you believe that having Him and living for Him is worth losing everything here? Because that could be put to the test. You understand, there are two ways to live this life. Jesus talks about them. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, He says, Enter by the narrow gate, that narrow gate of Christ alone. For 
The gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction. Same word, uh, apolumi. And those who enter by that wide gate are many. That's where the world's going. That's where, that's where they think the life is. But it leads to death. But the gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. And though there are only a few that find it. You can't have both. You can't have a foot on both paths. They diverge in opposite directions. Those who live for the here and now, whose focus is on themselves and loving themselves and having it all themselves and clinging to their plans and demanding their way and gratifying their desires and having their comforts, they lose all. Oh friend, be warned. Some of you perhaps, some of you probably, are in danger of suffering this loss. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man. It looks right to me. looks good to me. But its end is the way of death. Stay on that course marked by self-actualization and self-fulfillment and self, 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 and you destroy yourself. But turn in surrender to Christ. Cast all on Him. Yield all to Him so, so that you're willing to go where He sends and live as He commands and die where He says die and you gain everything. I mean, let this be your prayer with the Apostle Paul. Not I, but Christ. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Randy Alcorn put it very well in his little book, The Treasure Principle. I hope you have that. If not, I'd be glad to give you one if I've still got some. It's actually a book about how we look at worldly wealth and how we look at our possessions. Uh, it's a really good book, but what he says in that book applies beyond just our, our things. It applies to us ourselves. And he says, I think of it in terms of a dot and a line. Okay, do you remember your geography? Uh, geography. Do you remember your... <laughs> Geometry, that's the word I'm looking for. You draw a little dot and it, it represents a single point. And then you put a line coming out of that dot with an arrow and it, it represents going off forever and ever and ever and not ending. He says, I think in terms of the dot and the line, our lives have two phases. One a dot, the other a line. Our present life on earth is the dot. It begins, it ends, it's brief. But from the dot extends a line that goes on forever. That line is eternity, which Christians will spend in heaven. Right now we are living in the dot. But what we are living, but what are we living for? The short-sighted person, that is the person whose eyes are on himself, lives for the dot. The person with perspective, their eyes are on Christ, lives for the line. This earth and our time here is the dot. Our beloved bridegroom, the coming wedding feast, the great reunion, our eternal home in heaven and new earth, they're all on the line and that's key. I should live not for the dot but for the line. The person who lives for the dot lives for treasures on earth that rot and rust. The person who lives for the line lives for treasures in heaven that will last forever. Here's what Jesus is saying. Live for the dot and you forfeit your soul. Live for the line and you gain eternity. Amen. Cling to your stuff. Cling to your life as if it is your treasure and you lose it all. 
Give it away because you treasure Christ and you gain everything. I mean, that's throughout the New Testament. Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That means die to self. Take up his cross daily. What is the cross? It's your instrument of death. And follow me. For whoever who would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? That's a verse to think about this afternoon. And that's the call to discipleship. That's what He calls you to. To come, give all to Christ, to die to self that you may live. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in another great book, The Cost of Discipleship, said this, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with His death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, come follow me, He bids him come and die. When Christ calls a woman, when Christ calls a child, come follow me, He bids them come and die. Friend, listen, have you died to this life? so that you can live with Christ. That's what Christianity is. To be a Christian means you must follow Christ. Look at verse 26. I mean, if you ever had any doubt about this, he says, if anyone serves me, he must, what? Follow me. Strong emphasis, by the way, on the me here of Jesus. There's not a way to do this in English, but, 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 it, but, it, but, in, but in the Greek language, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's one way to say me, another way to say me, and the, the, the other way to say me means emphasis, underline, loud shouting. If you're going to serve me, Jesus says, you must follow me! And friend, listen, he's dead serious about this. Disciples follow their Lord as servants follow a master, as soldiers follow a commander, as sheep follow a shepherd. So just as He denied Himself and laid down His life for us, so we must deny ourselves and lay down our lives in obedience to Him. If not, if not, if you say, that's too much, I won't do it, listen carefully, if not, He then says, you cannot be my disciple. Wait a minute, did, did, did Jesus really say that? Or are you just making that up? Have you ever read Luke 14, 27, Luke 14, 33, and many other places? Listen to His words, Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. Luke 14, 33. So therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be My disciple. To belong to Him means that you yield all to Him. You follow Him. If you will not follow Him, then you don't belong to Him. I mean, we really have to understand this. There is no such thing as a non-following disciple. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian, as some call it, who believes in Jesus just enough to get into heaven, but doesn't actually intend to follow Him here and now. 
No, 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 that's simply a lie straight from the pit of hell smells like smoke. Listen to him again. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you're a Christian, you'll follow in the same life of self-denial you see in Christ because you're going where Christ goes. You're, you're following where He leads. You're, you're doing what He does. Oh, I know, not perfectly, not yet. Then we sit and think, well, I hadn't got this down yet. hadn't got this worked out yet. No, 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 no. Salvation's a gift. You don't do these things to get salvation. But because you have salvation by grace, this is the life that flows out of that salvation. If you belong to Him, you will follow Him. Where you're not following Him... We have a problem. What part of this life are you clinging to? What sin are you clinging to? What possession, what thing matters more to you than Christ does? What are you, what are you, what are you resisting and refusing to do because you won't let Christ have this? That's the very thing His finger is on right now saying, it must die. Yield it. And you say, man, that's hard. To give up everything? If I give up everything, what will I have? What will that leave me with? Oh, dear friend, it will leave you with Christ. And you will gain access through Christ to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit with life forever. I mean, that's the treasure that's worth losing everything to have. That's the treasure. And notice how Jesus expresses that. Two promises. We're almost there, but these are too good not to get. Two promises in verse 26. First promise, as you give all... In death to self, to live with Christ, you gain the assurance that Christ is with you everywhere you go. Verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. It's simple logic. If you always follow Christ, you'll always be where Christ is. His presence will fill your days. Remember that promise He gave the church, Matthew 28, when He said, Go teach all nations, baptizing them. And then He promised, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Friend, listen, the reason we shake our hands free of these sins and attachments and weights that cling to us, the reason we shake our hands free of this world is so that we can fill these hands with the sure promises of Christ. You follow Him, you'll always be near Him. Second, you follow Him and He says you'll be honored by the Father. This is just too precious for words and we don't have time to delve into it deeply. You can do that on your own. But it means you will know the smile of the Father's approval. Again, walking with Christ, you'll live daily under the smile of the Father's approval just like Christ did. Because everything Christ does is approved by the Father. It honors the Father. It delights the Father. And as you follow in Christ, with Christ, walking with Christ, that honor, that delight, that joy the Father has in the Son splashes over on you. You'll know His delight in the Son. And by the way, let me give this assurance. And even when you sin because you're following Christ, you know His smile of approval because that's a gift, not something you've earned. You'll know His delight in His Son because you share in that delight. It's been extended to you through your union with Christ. And then, and then, when your days on earth have ended, you'll hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. And you'll come home and be given a seat up next to Him in glory. 
And you'll laugh, and you'll worship, and you'll delight, and you'll dance in His presence. That's what Jesus is saying. Live for this, He says. Keep this day in view as you live day to day down here. Because that's where your life is. Live for the line of unending joy in the endless presence of Christ, not for the dot of this present fading world that's never going to satisfy you anyway, but the life that comes from Christ and goes on forever, that will satisfy you. And so I'll just close with this from the Apostle John, author of this particular letter, by the way. So I think there's a connection of this particular gospel. John writes this, 1 John 2, 15-17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Consider which way your life is leading at this point. Living for yourself, loving this present little limited life of yours, clinging to it, holding on to it as your possession. You're destroying yourself. Or giving it away, yielding it to Christ, letting Him have all that you are, all that you have, everything, and you gain eternal life. Father, this word of yours has certainly worked to convict me much this week because I'm, I am painfully aware of my own selfishness in many ways. I see it. Lord, I hate it. But there it is. It comes up again and again. Loving myself first rather than my wife, children, loving, gratifying of my desires, seeking to satisfy them with things you've forbidden, rather than yielding all to be given the things that you delight in. I'm reminded by this, Lord, that as we stand here and we talk about dying to live, that it doesn't begin with us earning our way by working up a death and then trying to manufacture a new life, but by looking to Christ who died in our place and rose for us and with us so that by turning from all that is us to lay hold of all that is Him, we receive this new life and then begin to live it. So Lord, even now with the, the person who is saying, oh, I want to see Jesus, show them Jesus in His death and resurrection for sinners who believe to give life forever. Show us what needs to be left behind in the garbage can, buried into the ground, that we might have this life Christ so freely gives. In His name we pray. Amen.